Hey everyone, Sarah Peck here, and this is the Startup Pregnant Podcast. I'm always fascinated by what prompts people to start businesses. For a lot of people, it's an idea or a dream, you know, something they've always wanted to do. But what is that thing that finally gets us to start? For other people, it can be a set of circumstances that jolts you into action. And what's been really interesting on this show is that one of the things I'm hearing is how often parenting and pregnancy can really change things up in your life, force a change, require a change, necessitate change, sometimes whether you were planning on it or not. So in today's interview, we are going to talk to a well-known business owner, Tara Gentili, about how her parenting journey took her from a path in retail management to becoming a business owner. She was pregnant, and at nine months pregnant, while the day after leaving for maternity leave, she lost out on a job opportunity that she was perfect for. She was made for it, mostly because people were afraid of what maternity leave would do. That was the last straw in many respects, and she was furious. And in her words, and you'll hear about this in the interview coming up, she said, I got really angry and then I got really resourceful. She spent the next six months learning how to be a mom and also learning what it took to be a freelancer. She discovered the online business world and, well, the rest is history. So that's what we get to hear about today. So let me tell you a little bit more about today's guest. Tara Gentili is one of my long time, just people that I admire in business, someone I've watched and known about, someone I think of as a friend tour. So a friend that I've gotten to know, but also somebody that I get to learn from a tremendous amount just by watching the way that they show up in the world. She's always got an incredible amount of wisdom about growing businesses and building marketing campaigns and spreading the word and being consistent, being steady in your action. She's a teacher. She's a speaker. She's an incredible mind on business. For her official bio, if you don't know, she's the founder of CoCommercial. It's a fluff-free social network of small business owners and entrepreneurs making waves in the new economy. And she's also the host of Profit Power Pursuit, which is a podcast that takes you behind the scenes of successful small businesses. It was named by Entrepreneur as one of 24 top women-hosted podcasts for businesses. And she's also a teacher at Creative Live, and her work has been featured in many, many publications. So let's welcome Tara to the show. Welcome to the Startup Pregnant Podcast, where we talk to creative leaders about what it means to be an entrepreneur and a parent. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Acuity Scheduling. If you haven't switched to a scheduler yet to help you with all the back and forth of figuring out appointments, I highly recommend trying it. Switching to a calendar scheduler changed my life and saved me so much time. So typically, Acuity offers a free two-week trial if you want to give it a whirl, but for startup pregnant listeners, they have a 45-day trial for us. Go to acuityscheduling.com slash startuppregnant and you'll get a 45-day trial. As always, hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a minute to leave us a review, we would love that. If you need any of the show notes from the show, head to startuppregnant.com. 
All right, today I have an amazing guest joining us, Tara Gentili. It is an honor to have you joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. I'm stoked. I couldn't be more thrilled to have you. So I want to start with my favorite question, which is, what was your morning like today? What time did you wake up? What do you do first? Not every day, just today. And take us through your morning. Yeah, I woke up at about 10 of 6, which was before my alarm was set, which is pretty normal for me. And then I laid in bed, as I do, uh, for about 40 minutes, checking in with the news, seeing what's going on on Instagram, not getting started with work, but just sort of like dipping into the digital world. Then I worked out for a half an hour on the treadmill because it is freaking cold here right now. And also it had snowed and I fall down very easily. So I could not run outside for lots of reasons. (laughs) (laughs) I took a shower, took my daily... become a daily trip to Starbucks for my quad venti almond milk latte. And then I got to work. Ah, And where is work? Do you work from an office, from your house? What does that look like? I work from my home office. I tried working out of the house for a little while a couple of years ago, and it did not go well. I really like working from home. (laughs) The commute's pretty great. It's pretty great. It's usually for me, it's like to the coffee shop because I need something to signify that the day Mm -hmm. has started. But then I come back home and I'm like, yeah, this is great. Exactly. Same, same. So how long have you been in business for yourself? You have been a staple in my online business world since the beginning of time for me. And you're such a leader in your work and your writing. And so many friends of mine have pointed me to your work. But can you take us back? How long have you been in business for yourself? And what did it look like back in the beginning when you were starting? Yeah, so I believe January 2nd will be my ninth anniversary as a small business owner. I guess I got started on the website that I initially launched back in 2009, a couple weeks before that. So we'll call it nine years. Before I started my business, I was a retail manager. So many people with degrees in liberal arts are. I had worked for five years for Borders Books and Music. I'd worked my way up and was a sales and sales manager, but managing HR and merchandising and coffee and all of these different things and having a lot of fingers in most of the operations of a five million dollar business with anywhere from you know 35 to 55 employees at any given time. And even though it was certainly a corporate environment, Borders, may she rest in peace, was also very focused on the individualization of each of its stores. And so we had a fair amount of autonomy. And I think that's really when I initially fell in love with what business could be and how it worked and just like the ins and outs of things. And then before that, as I said, I I have a liberal arts degree. I have a BA in religion. And my original life goal and plan was to become a, a professor of religious studies. And I get to do a lot of the things that I loved about that, the idea of that career track today. You know, I do a lot of community building. I do a lot of teaching. I do a lot of writing. I do a lot of travel. And yeah, and so there's absolutely tons of parallels between both of sort of my former lives and the work that I do today. Wow. So what tipped you over the edge? What said, okay, I have to go start something. I have to go become my own business owner. And what was that first business that you started? Yes. Well, very appropriately, I was pregnant (laughs) and I was a pregnant retail manager, which is not fun. (laughs) The the schedule doesn't change because you're pregnant. The responsibilities outside of like medical necessity don't change because you're pregnant. And probably worst of all, the pay and benefits don't change because you're pregnant. 
But more than that, I was up for a promotion at my job. I was finally going to take over the $5 million store instead of just being you know, one of the managers on the team, one of the core managers on the team. I had been being groomed for that job the vast majority of time I'd been in management at our store. I did a series of interviews. Everything was looking really, really good until I got a phone call one day from a friend of mine who was working with me, a co-manager. And she said, Tara, I'm really sorry to have to tell you this, but they gave the job to somebody else. And that person had less time at the company than I had, had less experience in management, had fewer results to her name than I had. But she wasn't nine months pregnant when she interviewed for the job, and I was. And so this phone call really happened either the first or second day of my maternity leave, just days before I was going to give birth. I was so pissed off (laughs) that this had been taken from me. It would have been a huge pay increase, even though it would have still been really stressful and the schedule would have still been nuts. It would have been, for me, a step in the right direction, you know, just because I feel like I'm that kind of person that always has to be moving forward. And it just felt like this ginormous step back. And so I got really angry first. And then I got really resourceful. And I said, you know, I know that there are thousands of other women out there who work from home, who do their own thing, who freelance, who have small businesses. I got to figure out what they know that I don't know, because if they can do it, I can do it. And so I spent the next six months learning how to be a mom, but also at the same time learning what it took to be a freelancer, how I could apply my skills, what I needed to do to get out in front of people, how I might be able to really make it work. And I discovered the world of of online business and blogging and, and all of that good stuff at the time. I had been a blogger way back before then as well in college. And gosh, if I had only stuck with it. So I was thrilled to find out that I could make money blogging now here in wonderful, amazing 2009. And so my first quote unquote business was a blog that I started back in January 2009 that was geared to artists and craftspeople in Pennsylvania. It was called handmadeinpa.net. I kind of started building a community on the side over at Facebook before the website launched. And then I I just I launched the blog with stories of craftspeople and stories of makers and designers who were just making really cool stuff and doing it in really cool ways and just trying to share their story. And very quickly, I got on the radar of the Pennsylvania Guild of Craftsmen here who invited me to do some workshops. And I didn't know what the heck I was doing, but I was like, sure, I could teach a workshop on blogging, I guess. And eventually, it just kind of snowballed from there where opportunity came after opportunity. And I and I looked at ways that I could expand or move into new markets so that it became more sustainable, but also so that I could generate more revenue as well and really build something that was a business and not just a blog. So that's sort of the genesis of the whole thing. Wow. I didn't even know that that was the catalyst for your leaving the corporate world and starting your own business, yeah. the pregnancy. I, I didn't know that as part of your story. And yet now that you've shared it, first of all, I was like pissed as bleep, bleep, bleep. You know, I was, <laughs> I was just like, what the heck? Like, why are, why do businesses not get how wonderful and powerful people are and think that pregnancy is so strange and weird? Like, oh, we got to stay away. And yet what an amazing opportunity to catapult you into this new world and this new journey towards online business. How did that evolve? You start out by blogging and by creating a community for crafts people and specifically in an area near Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. Was it in Philadelphia or somewhere Um, else? I was based in Reading, but I was representing the whole state with the blog. The whole state. Okay. 
But now, can you take us to where you are today? So nine years have transpired. I have more questions about the in-between, but tell us what your work looks like today and what your business looks like today. Yeah, so it's been a wild year because really I've spent most of this year getting back to my roots, getting back to my original mission and getting back to a lot of the original strengths that I had getting the business off the ground. So today, my company runs a social network for small micro business owners who are operating in one way or another online. So they're using digital tools, they're using digital marketing, they're meeting with clients all over the globe via Skype or Zoom. Some of them have offline presences as well. Some of them do lots of work in person, but they're all using online tools in one way or another. And what we've created for them at CoCommercial is essentially a platform that gives them access to people, information, ideas, experiences, events that elsewhere they would have to pay thousands for or maybe wouldn't even have access to at all. And we've really tried to level the playing field so that if you're someone who shows up with questions, you're someone who shows up hungry for other people's experiences, you're someone who shows up hungry to just take in whatever you can about growing a business in today's new economy, we're there for you. And we're going to equip you with what you need to grow yourself and to grow your business. And we're going to do it for way less than other people do because we're really built on the collective intelligence of our community as opposed to a particular guru or expert or small business leader who says, you know, my way is the only way. So we're really looking Mm. to, yeah, give people sort of a diversity of experience and, like I said, plug them into that collective intelligence that exists in our network. Yeah. And so that's what we do on a daily basis is I get to hang out online talking to smart people about interesting things. And it's pretty much like a dream come true. If you would have asked like the college me or even the high school me, like, what would you like to do when you grow up? I would have said, you know, if I could get paid to hang out on the internet and talk to smart people about interesting things, that is what I would like to do. And that is literally what I get paid to do today. So it's amazing. (laughs) So in watching the evolution of your business life and being in the internet sphere with you, I've seen you do so many different programs, your kickstart labs and various versions of what look like coaching and masterminds and one-on-one work with people. How did you go from those things? Are you still doing them to building this community? And how has the business changed from one to the other? Yeah. So the community has existed in one way or another for about the last five years or so. So you mentioned kickstart labs and really this community has grown straight out of that. It's just that we put our 100% focus on the community now. In terms of coaching, whether it's one-on-one coaching or group coaching, we've really started to retire that. So I still do some because we're still in the process of self-funding the growth of that community. It's not something that pays for itself right now. It's something that I pay for through you know the work that I do with other people on a higher level. So I do do some of that still, but it's not at all the emphasis of our work. That said, we do have the community and we have a couple of other layers above that where if you're looking for more hands-on help, if you want to be in a more curated, smaller group of people, we facilitate that as well. So I'm a facilitator for those groups. I wouldn't call myself a coach in that environment. And it's not about me. It's about other people as well. Yeah. So Quiet Power Strategy, the certification program that we had done, the group coaching program under that name that we had done, that stuff has all been retired. It's still work that I draw on on a daily basis, but it's not something that we actively do anymore. And the reason for that is because 
frankly, I was tired of the marketing and sales cycle behind it. And I was tired of people, they would buy those programs or they would invest in coaching like that. It didn't give them what they needed for the long haul. It gave them what they needed right then. It answered a lot of questions right then and people loved it. But what I often saw was after that support period was over, after the five months were up or you know we stopped meeting as a group, you know, they'd kind of walk back their plans or they'd become less active or they wouldn't reach out and ask for help anymore. And I didn't want that to be normal. I wanted people to realize that growing a business is actually about connecting with other people and constantly asking for help and constantly showing up with something to say or a story to offer or a hand to give as well as a hand to receive. And so just in this last year, really taken everything that we've built to this point and really start pointing it back toward that community that we have had for a long time, but haven't put emphasis on. It's been a really exciting transformation to be a part of, but also to kind of watch from the outside as well. And, you know, the other piece of it was really, you know, last year after the presidential election, like so many other people, I was just out for the count for quite a while. I was knocked down, so disheartened, so sad, so angry. And I really started to question is what I'm doing? Does it really matter? Am I actually building toward a bigger mission right now? Or am I just running a business that makes good money? Well, yes, I can say, sure, we were building toward a bigger mission. Yeah, we had these things in mind. They weren't the organizing force behind the business. And so I wanted to put my personal mission back in the driver's seat and our company's mission back in the driver's seat and reorganize the business around that. And our mission has been from day one until now, lifting up the members of the new economy, the people who are building businesses in the new world of work, you know, creating independent careers for themselves. And we see co-commercial as a way for us to really be leaders in that new economy and for us to advocate on behalf of people who are freelancers, who are small business owners, who are micro business owners, who don't have the same social safety nets that employees have, that don't get the same kind of benefits, that don't have anything to rely on, you know, in the form of government support here in the United States. So many of our policies just do not support small business owners in that way. We want to be part of the group that changes that. And so, yeah, that was kind of a rambling answer, but that's what this whole transition has kind of looked like. Oh, it was a very clear answer. Okay, <laughs> I, don't worry. I don't think it was rambling at all. I was following along and now I have so many more questions for you, as always happens. There are a couple of themes in there. You spoke about retiring products and a couple of other things I'll ask you in a moment. But this idea of knowing when something is done in your business, can you talk about how do you decide when to retire something? And how do you know whether or not it's the right time to do it? And then how does that affect your business planning for the future? If something is leaving, how do you set up and adapt your business plan going forward? Mm, yeah, such a good question. So I think there are a lot of different indications that a product may need to be retired. I think there's probably no clear framework, though, for making that decision and feeling 100% amazing about it. Like we can get to 98% sure. <laughs> but just like with everything else in business ownership and entrepreneurship, you know, there's always a little bit of a risk involved. And there was absolutely risk involved with us retiring these programs. I mean, these are programs that 
are generating hundreds of thousands of dollars per year and allowing me to live a really awesome lifestyle, allowing me to invest in all sorts of things with my business and deciding to retire that is a huge decision and a huge amount of risk. So what I didn't do is wait until it stopped selling. I didn't even feel like it had stopped working, but there were pieces of it that I realized were no longer what I wanted to be building. That may be actually the best guideline that I could give is that at the end of last year, well, really throughout 2016, I started asking myself, what is the company that I really want to be building? What do I want this company to look like five years from now, 10 years from now, 25 years from now? And I think this is a really important question for small business owners, definitely for freelancers even as well, because so often we're focused on just putting one foot in front of the next that we forget that as we are putting one foot in front of the next, we're building something. There is something being built as we move forward. And oftentimes, you know, you look back on the last three years, the last five years, the last 10 years and say, well, gosh what I built isn't really what I wanted to have built or, you know, what I have left in my wake isn't really what I wanted to have left in my wake. That's not the legacy that I want to lead. And so I retired those products, like I said, before they stopped selling, before I thought they were broken in any particular way, because I realized that they weren't helping me build what I really wanted to build. And I'm not entirely sure at the time that I knew this is exactly what I wanted to build, but I knew that it wasn't that. And I was starting to lay the groundwork of figuring out what that vision really was or could be. And so I got really, really clear on that. Like I said, I got really focused on my mission again and what really lit me up in terms of working with small business owners in this new economy. And that's what allowed me to say, no, it's time to put this stuff away. In terms of how I then plan for that in my business plans, we were able to take a lot of what I had built to that point and work it into our cash flow plans and our projections for this past year so that we could self-fund essentially what was a new business. And in my head, that's how I think of it. Like the company hasn't actually changed. The people are mostly the same, although we've grown a lot people-wise. The audience is the same. The customers are very much the same. But to me, it's a completely new business. So I think of still, there are pieces of that old business that yes, we've rebranded. Yes, you know, maybe we take a different angle on it. And they're sort of starting to be reincorporated into the new business now. But those old assets from the old company were able to self-fund the growth of our community. And so for me, that was how I juggled this change is We retired the brand, we retired the particular format and structure of those products, but the stuff that was working best from them, the things that are most profitable, the things that people loved most about them, that stuff we kept, we reworked the structure and we built it to allow us to self-fund something that was a lot more scalable, that was building the legacy, building the company that I wanted to build and that was more mission focused. And and like I said, more focused on that collective intelligence piece, the diversification of experience piece so that we could create a really accessible platform. For as big on the outside as the 
business transition has looked internally, it's been both a lot smoother of a transition, a lot less of an upheaval. And then at the same time, some of it has been more of an upheaval. Like I said, you know, in my brain, we got rid of one company and started a new company, even though that that's not technically true. So we've got that piece, but it's living at the same time. It's like we're still drawing on a lot of the assets that allowed us to be as profitable as we were and generate as much revenue as we did. And in doing that, that then allows us to get a real head start on this other line of work that we're doing and that we feel has the capacity to grow for decades into the future. So at this point in the interview, I asked Tara to dive in further, but we get cut off. As it happens when you're a parent and an entrepreneur, sometimes things come up. And that Thursday while I was doing this interview, we had an actual family emergency in our house and I had to drop everything and run immediately. So I cut Tara off and over the weekend I emailed her a little bit mortified about having to reschedule and she was beyond kind and popped back up on the show for a part two on Monday. I could have edited this into one show, but life happens. And one of our policies and one of my core values is to try as much as possible to learn out loud. And that includes all the mistakes and the hiccups and the questions that that come up. So Tara was amazing. We dove into a second part of this interview. So let's dig back in with Tara. She came back to talk further. And in this next part of the interview, we chat about writing practices, community building and more. So welcome back, Tara. All right, welcome back, everybody, to part two of this interview with Tara Gentili. We got cut off before because, lo and behold, a true family emergency came up, and it makes me even more grateful that I'm building my own business because I was able to tell Tara that I had to break and then regroup, and she's so amazing because she came back. So we're continuing this part two. Welcome back, Tara. Well, thanks for having me. And, you know, I'm always glad for a little extra time in my schedule, so (laughs) it worked out. There are so many parents who tell me that. I'm like, I'm so sorry for canceling. And they're like, look, there's plenty I could do to put into that time. Exactly. Cancellations are amazing. And then you're like, I'm going to finish something today. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. So I want to turn now and ask you about something I've always wanted to ask you about. And that's about your writing practice. You are such a prolific writer. You have published several books. How do you make space? space for writing? And what does it do for you? Can you talk about your writing practice? Mm, So I wish I could call it a writing practice that sounds fancier and more intentional than what I probably have, but I will do my best. I think it would be probably most helpful to start with the way I make time for writing, which is really a question about how I view my role in my company. And so I'm not just the CEO of my company. I'm also the chief marketer in my company. And I have people who are responsible for other aspects of my business. You know, we have a what we call a community advocate. Her name's Shannon. She is in charge essentially of both our value creation and value delivery in the form of our community. And yes, I have some say in that, obviously. And yes, there is still some value delivery that I am in charge of and some value creation that I'm in charge of. But she is the point person for that. And I am the point person for marketing. And writing has always been a huge part of marketing my business in whatever form it's taken. 
So yes, I have a full-time job running my company, but I also have a full-time job as the chief marketing officer, essentially. And that means that a huge part of my job is writing. And so that has to be accounted for in my schedule. I have to have time to do that job. And I think for a lot of people who do struggle with, you know, how do I fit in content marketing? How do I fit in copywriting? How do I fit in writing for pleasure, exploration, or, you know, even just kind of figuring things out with my business? I think a big problem with that is not understanding how writing actually fits into the job that you have. And, you know, so many people who are freelancers, solo entrepreneurs, digital small business owners, even startup founders, they are a huge part of the marketing of their business. And that means a huge part of your job is writing. And so that's how I make time for it. It's not that I have a block of time on my calendar for writing, although that works for a lot of people. It does not work for me. What we do instead is there are some days when I have calls and I have meetings, and then there are some days that are pretty much wide open. And those pretty much wide open days are my marketing days, essentially. And so that's when the vast majority of my writing gets done as well. So, you know, my CEO days outside of, you know, analysis and research and things like that. Those are the days where I'm on the phone, I'm in meetings, I'm leading, actively leading. And then those off days are when, quote unquote, off days, they feel like off days to me because I really enjoy it. But those quote unquote off days are where I schedule that writing space. In terms of the practice itself, for me, I tend to think about writing in my business as largely a kind of call and response. So I imagine our community members, I imagine my peers and my colleagues, I imagine the audience as a whole putting out a call, and my job is to respond to that. And that's how I write best. If you tell me to just, you know, sit down and write on a subject, or you tell me to, hey, sit down and write about whatever you want to write about, I tend to get blocked up the same way any writer does, or most writers do. But if instead, there's a conversation that's happening out there, and I feel the call of that conversation, I can easily sit down and write 1500 words in an hour responding to that. And I think, you know, you said I'm fairly prolific. And I think objectively, that's probably actually true. (laughs) But that's what powers that prolificness is being willing to constantly be in a conversation with our community, my colleagues, and the audience as a whole, and allow that to kind of ebb and flow and have that natural back and forth that allows me to produce content. And that means sometimes that I will publish something that is, by most accounts, probably unfinished. It's not perfect. There may even be typos in it. I try to avoid it, but it happens. The argument may not be complete. The point of view may not be completely fleshed out, but I'd rather publish it and get the call back or the response back to my response so that I can further hone it, make it better, evolve the conversation over time. And that's what then leads to more and more finished pieces and and leads to bigger projects being done and bigger ideas being put out in writing as well. That's sort of the big picture view of how I incorporate writing into my business and how I approach it. Mm, That was so thorough. And I so appreciate and I can tell from outside observation that it's call and response, because every time you write a piece and you publish it, I actually always feel like I want to write you back. 
And oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> which is great to hear you say, because you'll point out like one of your essays was on trends for small business, I believe, coming up in 2018 and what you're observing about the nature of work. And I remember reading it and saying, oh, I want to talk to Tara about these trends that she's saying. And then lo and behold, you post on your Facebook page and in your community co-commercial and you ask people to reply, like, how is this sitting and how is this working for you? And the amount of value that I get from that and the feeling that it's also helping you back because then you're starting to understand a lot about your community. It's just such a, I don't want to say well-oiled system because that sounds a little clunky, but it seems to be working so well. So give us a sense. How many articles are you publishing a week and how do you carve out time to write your books? Yeah. So article-wise, it varies week to week. And there will be weeks where I don't write articles or publish articles. But I would say... On average, I'm writing for publication, public publication anyway, about 1,500 to 2,000 words a week. Now, I publish internally in our community more often than that on a regular basis as well. I write emails. I write landing pages. And so I might be writing all in five to 6,000 words a week, which isn't a huge amount, but it's more than a lot of people crank out, you know, just over the course of the week. And sometimes, you know, I'll sit down and I'll write a whole marketing campaign in, in one shot that, you know, it might go over out over a long period of time, but it's done fairly quickly and it's done as one full piece. The book writing question is catching me a little off guard right now, only because I'm so far out from my last project on that. And I feel like I haven't made the space for writing a book recently, although I've got some ideas of things I would like to turn into closer to book length projects. We did three what we call virtual conferences this year at Co-Commercial, where we invited in experts on different topics. Our first one was on money. Our second one was on being a reluctant manager. Our last one was just about taking a time out in your business to reflect and review and, and plan. And I would love to turn each of those into, you know, small book length things. I would love to turn some of my creative live classes into book length things. And I haven't made space. So I'll just be totally transparent and honest about that. I have not made space to write books recently. I've been way more focused on systems. I've been way more focused on team growth. And last year, I really made a decision to put a lot of emphasis on my podcast, Profit Power Pursuit, utilize those conversations more in content marketing. And so my head has been kind of divided between these conversations like this one that I have with small business owners and writing in terms of marketing. And I'm still kind of finding the balance between how I use the podcast and how I use written content marketing to market our business. And so I think that's another reason why I haven't been able to make space for another book yet. But it's definitely something that I'm looking at and thinking about for 2018. Hmm. And that's so interesting and such a testament to the power of book writing because I have your books like on my shelves, in my Kindle, I mean, and I know you as having written these things. And yet maybe those were several years ago for you. They now. were. <laughs> wow. Right. And and so the response of the receiver on the other end is probably often at a lag. And yet you're already cooking up new big projects, putting together conferences that is the same amount of energy as a book. And it's almost like you have all the ingredients for books to come out again later on. I'm really curious about what you said you did conferences on money, on being a reluctant manager. Can you share some of that? Because I, yeah. that really, I was scribbling that down when you said that. 
<laughs> yeah, I was quite proud of that particular title. So we realized early last year that one of the easiest ways to get people interested in our community and really help them get adjusted to the culture, the kinds of conversations that we have, the kind of people that are in there are through events. And sometimes we do little events and sometimes we do big events. And so every quarter we put on a day long virtual conference. If you're familiar with like the old kind of telesummit model, it's sort of like that, but not really. <laughs> so we do it all live. It's not a pay for play thing. We tend to source our speakers inside of the community. So they're people that are, while they're experts and they have tons of experience, they tend not to be anyway, the huge names. I'm not going for star power. I'm going for like intellect power and experience power and, and all that good stuff. We have live conversations. So it's almost like seeing a season of a podcast come together in real life. But at the same time, because it's live and because our community is actually involved with the conference itself and they're, you know, typing along, asking questions, the conversations also get guided by the people who show up. And so, yeah, so in June, we did Your Money in the New Economy. That was our, our virtual conference then. And in September, we did The Reluctant Manager. And that one, it's another like question of call and response, right? So we kept seeing these questions come through of, you know, people who wanted to grow teams, people who wanted to delegate more, people who wanted to systematize their businesses more, who wanted to be a better manager of their own time and their own resources, even outside of hiring someone for help. But they had this extreme reluctance. There was always some resistance. There was a snag. There was a challenge that they were coming up against. And, you know, it's always bigger than just one post or one piece of content or even one class that I could teach. And so we wanted to really be able to tackle it from a whole bunch of different angles during that day. So we had things during that conference, everything from, you know, I talked to a former Chase Bank district manager about actually being a good boss and having great relationships with the people who work for you. We talked about time blocking with Marie Poulin from Doki. We certainly talked a lot about systems. We talked about onboarding new employees, going out and finding people who could actually help you instead of who would drag you down, and just confronting a lot of the mental blocks that freelancers and you know micro business owners have around hiring and around getting help. And so that conference was really fun. And yeah, and it was just it's just another example of that call and response to me. It's so much easier to create things that people want or even better create things that people need, right? And so I am an observer. I'm a listener. Like I'm a natural introvert <laughs> in Sally Hogshead's fascination system. I rank super high in mystique, which is the language of listening. And so I've always got my ear to the community, to the audience, to whatever the conversations are happening kind of on the inside. And I'm turning constantly turning that into content. And so content for us includes these kinds of events as well. Mm, this is so interesting. So is it only open to members of your community? How do people find out about it? And did you record all these conversations so that you can share them later? What does that look like? Yeah. So it's a perk of membership, which is how we're able to boost enrollment ahead of these conferences. So whereas we can say, hey, join co-commercial, start your 30-day free trial, we'll help you past whatever business challenge you're facing right now or answer whatever question you can't seem to answer through Google, that call to action, well, I think it's plenty strong is not actually that urgent, right? Maybe you don't have a pressing challenge right now. And maybe, sure, it'd be great to have some people to bounce ideas off of, but it doesn't have that 
painkiller aspect, right, that a, a really good CTA needs to have. When we do a conference, on the other hand, I can spend a couple of weeks talking about what we're going to talk about, talking about the kinds of questions or frustrations that our audience might have publicly and kind of, to use copywriting language, kind of agitate whatever problems they're dealing with so they become top of mind. And then we can say, hey, we're going to spend a whole day inside co-commercial talking about these things. And then those conversations are going to last in our community for months and months later. So we can create that sense of real natural urgency around that event. And we'll get a nice big boost of membership right ahead of one of those conferences. It's free for all members and it's even free for people who are on a free trial. So you don't even have to put out money <laughs> to come to one of our conferences. You just have to be willing to give the community a try. And so that's what we're always looking for is a way for people to give it a reason for people to finally give it a try. Because we know once they're in the door, they're going to love it. And we have a team that's going to help them love it and show them around. But we can't make all that magic happen until people are actually through the door. So that's kind of how the conferences have worked for us. But yeah, it's a member perk. We do them once a quarter. They are all recorded. So even if you like, if you join tomorrow, you can get access to all three of the virtual conferences that we've already had. You just don't get the live aspect of it. Because to me, the real magic happens when you're doing something live with people where there, there is actual back and forth and there is the opportunity to guide the conversation. And that's been kind of on a side note, that's really been a driving force for us a lot this year at Co-Commercial is, you know, there's so much just evergreen content out there. There's so much DIY out there. There's so much, you know, sit in your home office by yourself. And yes, you're learning stuff. And yes, you're growing your, your knowledge base. But are you applying it? Are you connecting with people? Are you co-creating with people? And we see such a hunger for that. And so we've tried, instead of building a resource library, or instead of trying to get people to go and dig through our archives of content, of which, you know, there are just masses and masses of content, our goal is to create content for people to use then and there. And then we move on to the next thing. So we think of it as, you know, like if you're thirsty, you're not trying to keep up with how much water is flowing through the stream, right? You dip your hands in, you take a drink, and then you walk away. It's the same thing with our content at our community. The community is always there, like the stream is always there. It's always available to feed you when you need fed, but you don't need to eat it all. You don't need to drink it all. Sorry to mix metaphors. Right? <laughs> you don't need to keep up with it. You're going to dip in and dip out as you need it. And so we're creating more of this live content. We do record everything, but we want to create the next thing you need instead of you know saying, hey, go check this out from three years ago. That's old now. <laughs> you know, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. So can you give us a sense of how big is the team that you have that's building all of this? Is your business name Tara Gentili? And then what does that business look like? Yeah. So I have worked really, really, really hard at moving away from my personal brand this year. Um, <laughs> so sure, lots of people still know me, obviously, by my name. And I'm still the, I guess, internet celebrity kind of person at the helm of you it. Are, even though you are. I don't like to think of it that way. But I've tried to step back and really bring co-commercial to the fore. So our business has been actually for many, many years now called co-commercial LLC. That's our official name. That's how we're organized. And there are six employees on the team, including myself. So we have two full-timers, me and my community advocate. 
We have two part-time member experience specialists whose job is to personally interact with members as they join us, as they have questions, as they need help finding things, making sure posts get answered. We are a very, very human-driven, human-powered network as opposed to an algorithm-powered network. I have an executive assistant who's part-time, and then I have a customer support and technical assistant who's part-time. It's only been in the last 12 months or so that we've moved away from a team of really smart, dedicated contractors, some of which are still with me, into a team of part-time and full-time W-2 employees. And that has been a like, oh my gosh, I don't know how I even did this before. (laughs) I love having employees. Yes, there is some stress around it. Yes, there's some red tape that you need to go through. But oh my word, there is nothing like having the support of people who are in it with you to make stuff happen. I just highly recommend hiring employees. It's, it's amazing. Mm. Um, I forget if there were other parts of that question, but I'll, I'll leave it there for now. <laughs> that, no, I wanted to get a sense of like, what's the team behind this? We've now heard about what you're building and how long you've been building it. So then I wanted to get a sense of the size of the team. And yeah. I'll confess, you know, I just looked at Gusto online, which used to be Zenefits, and I was like, employees, hmm, what would that be like? Because I work with contractors right now. So that little nudge of encouragement and for anybody who's listening, well, by golly, you know what? If you can do it, we can do it. So Totally, totally. <laughs> I mean, that's almost always the nudge that I need in my business is, well, if she can do it, I can do it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I will fully admit to that. It's how I got started with my business. You know, I looked at people who were working from home with kids and thought, well, if they can do it, certainly I can do it. And it's the same thing with employees. If other people can figure it out, I can figure it out. If other people can make it work financially, I can make it work financially. And there are absolutely challenges, but it is amazing to be supported by someone who is working as hard as you are. And I think the fact of the matter, yeah, contractors work incredibly hard, right? But they have to divide their time between you and everybody else that they're working for. And, you know, they're always figuring out how to do the least amount of work for you. Not because they're bad people, but because that's what their business is based on, right? They're trying to get you outcomes with the least amount of work. And sometimes we actually need more work. In fact, I would say a lot of times we need more work. In reality, I can pay less for an employee to be really high touch with my new members than I could for a contractor to do that. Because not only would I have to pay a contractor more per hour, they would not be incentivized in the same way to kind of handle our members at the scale that we need them to be handled. Whereas my part-time employees, they're like there for it. Like, how many people can I greet right now? Who all can I reach out to? How am I going to fill these hours? It creates a completely different dynamic. And it's been wonderful. I love that. That nudge is coming at a great time for me personally, which means that people listening, I'm sure there's many people listening who are like, Oh, maybe I'll do this. Okay, great. So (laughs) I want to go ahead. Yes. Gusto is what we use to manage it all. And Gusto is phenomenal. I've heard nothing but great things. And they're not a sponsor. They're not affiliated. They just seem to be super straightforward of like, here's all the things you have to figure out. Like, you're going to have to do these four things. We've got the forms and we'll walk you through it. And as a small business owner, when everything in front of you is sometimes like, now what's next that I have to figure out? What else don't I know? It's nice to have somebody lay it out and be like, yeah, you got paperwork, but we got it for you. Exactly. So it's not just the application, right? It's not just the thing that they do the payroll and they do this and they do that. They are a huge library of information too. And it's all right. And it's all there. And it's all 
updated. And when they don't have it, you just chat them and they'll send it right over to you. I can't say enough good stuff about Mm. Gusto. Great. I'll put a link in the show notes for people. I literally just did this yesterday as of talking. (laughs) So I'll share from my own experience that they right now in December 2017, they had a free month and I just created an account so that I could play. And they have all these like fake employees that you can pretend to pay (laughs) as you like do the little (laughs) tutorial, which, but it made me feel so much better. And save us walking into an infomercial for Gusto. This is something you can do with lots of different programs and apps is like go in, play around, try an account, see what it does for you. Does it help? Does it work? Sometimes that's just the information and that little nudge that you need of like, oh, I know where it is. And I know that when I'm looking for an employee, I can use something like this. Yeah. Not to go down a rabbit hole with this too, but what, you know, something you just brought up too made me think one big problem I see with small business owners is they think because they're so used to doing everything themselves that they have to find all the answers themselves too. And they don't ask for help from the applications that they use, the apps that they use enough either. Don't Google how to change the C name in your web hosting. Just email HostGator or WP Engine or whatever it is, you you pay them for a reason. You pay them for that support. Same thing with Gusto, same thing with your ESP, whatever it is. Ask for help more often from the applications you use. Now, it really is. It's a great tip. And it really is like you're sitting in my office right now, like giving me coaching because um, (laughs) I need to hear this, which means other people need to hear this. But yeah, like even the other day, I was trying to figure out about how to do more sales for sponsors for the Startup Pregnant Podcast, fittingly, right? And that's Mm -hmm. a big thing on my agenda coming up. And I swear I sat on it for three or four weeks thinking I had to somehow magically come up with all of the information, all of the scripts, all of the people. And then, you know, it takes four weeks of banging your head against a wall sometimes before you're like, oh, right, there are smart people I can ask. (laughs) So you are really preaching not to the choir, but to what's the opposite of a choir? Like Uh, the person who needs to hear it, (laughs) the audience? (laughs) (laughs) The congregation. We're preaching to the congregation. And to me, straight to my heart. So, and I mean, I think that in a nutshell is what we're trying to do at co-commercial is short circuit those things for people so that instead of wasting four weeks trying to figure out how you're going to make this incredibly important part of your plan happen that, you know, other people have already figured out, you go over to co-commercial and you say, guys, this is my plan. This is what I'm trying to figure out who here has already done this. And how did you do it? What can you tell me? And just having a place where there are freaking smart people who have been in business for a long time. We just did a member survey. And 80% of our members have been in business three years or longer. 45% of our members have been in business six years or longer. These people have this stuff figured out. You just got to go ask. A hundred percent. This is back to your point about call and response too. I feel like it's a lesson I'm constantly learning over and over again. It's not one that it's like, I just figure out. It's like you open up a new level and you're like, oh, this new area. Oh, right. Strategies that I need to exercise again and ways of being that I'm I want to show up in the world in this way. Okay, so before we run out of time, I want to ask you about, well, we're the Startup Pregnant Podcast. I want to ask you about your parenting journey. You have a kiddo. I think just one, right? I don't know. Yep, just one. Just one little kiddo. And how old? She's nine. Nine. That's coincides with what you said earlier about how long you've been in business and why you started business. So how does having a kid intermesh with business and travel and entrepreneurship? And in what ways has it changed your life? Well, I mean, I would don't know that I would have a business if I didn't have a kid, which is, I guess, probably more common than it might seem on the face. Had I not had a kid, I probably would have gone back to school. 
I would have sought out a different job. I wouldn't have had the same kind of constraints that forced me willingly in the direction of starting a business and learning everything that I have over the last nine and a half years. Now, in terms of how having a kid fits into my work life now, I have a very strange situation for most women in that the primary caregiver of my daughter is my ex-husband. And so she lives with him about 30 minutes away from where I live now. And she goes to school there. You know, he takes care of her daily needs or weekly needs, all her needs, really. And we get her on weekends. And obviously, we see her in between as well. She has basketball games. We take her out for dinner. We take her to an event. We go to last week. It was the holiday concert. We're close enough for an easy drive where we have lots and lots of interaction with her. and And we're watching her grow up. But in terms of my day-to-day work life, it is generally not something I have to worry about. And at the same time, like next week, when my ex-husband has to go to work after Christmas, and I don't have to go to work after Christmas, because who wants to work after Christmas? (laughs) You know, we get to grab her for a whole week and travel and do fun things that she wouldn't otherwise be able to do if she had two parents working full time out of the home. That's a cool part too. Also, well, one, it makes it easier for me to travel for work, which has been a huge part of growing my business over the last six, seven years. Maybe at this point, I go back and forth to San Francisco quite often. I used to go back and forth to Seattle quite often. And then, you know, speaking different places, I just I need to travel. It's a big part of how I get in front of new people. It's a big part of how I make money. It's important. That said, because we've gotten really good at travel and because I have a very large points balance and, um, you know, travel is something that we enjoy as a family, Lola's also gotten to travel with us a lot as well. And so, you know, I didn't travel at all as a kid. You know, we left the county every so often, but even leaving the state, I mean, I guess we went to Jersey to the beach. So that counts. I didn't get out and about. I didn't see the country until much, much later in life. I was six before I'd ever been on a plane. It was another five years after that until I was on a plane again. Lola, on the other hand, gets really ticked off when she doesn't get to fly very often. She loves going on road trips. She loves exploring new places. And so we are able to kind of, you know, put things on hold or put the business on autopilot or turn it over to the team for a week or two at a time and take her around to see things that I didn't get to see as a kid. And so For me, the business has been a way to not only create flexibility that I need as a mother, but I think for me, most importantly, it's given me the opportunity to give her experiences that I wouldn't have dreamed of being able to have as a kid myself, or even early on in being a mother, wouldn't have been able to dream being able to give to her either. So that's kind of a whirlwind explanation, but that's kind of where we are right now. Hmm. I mean, I know a couple of other people who have unusual parenting arrangements, or maybe not unusual, but like atypical. It's not Mm -hmm. the common narrative. And in some ways, it seems like there's so much freedom associated with it. But I want to ask, too, is this something that you knew was going to turn out in this way? Was it something that you like, you're like, I want to be this involved in business, and this is the kind of parent I want to be? Or did you stumble into it accidentally? Like, how did this get this way? 
Yeah, a little bit of both, if that's possible. So when my ex-husband and I were still married, we switched over and I became the primary breadwinner. And eventually he stopped working and became the primary caregiver. And so there was a time even when we were still married where he was the point person (laughs) as the parent. And that didn't feel weird or unusual at all at the time because he was the one who really, really wanted to be a dad. And I was like, yeah, okay, sure. (laughs) Even though most of my life, I like really didn't want to have a kid. But it seemed like the thing to do. And we did it. And I love my kid. And I'm so glad that she's here. And at the same time, it's not a calling for me the way it is with some moms and some women. When we split, we had pretty even custody, although often I was working more than parenting. I mean, I think the way many working mothers are, you end up working more than parenting, even when your kid lives with you. After that, there was a couple of years where I actually lived across the country out in Oregon, and I would fly back and forth to do visits. And that was sort of how we stumbled into, no, he's going to be the one who has full custody, and I'm going to be the one who works around her schedule, works around my schedule to make this relationship work. When that stopped working, uh, it was a very easy decision to move back to Pennsylvania. And we've been in this situation ever since. And now, you know, my ex-husband and I have a great co-parenting relationship. We're friends and it just makes it super easy to be really flexible and come and go as necessary. And like I said, he's the dad. He loves, he relishes being a dad. And I would say I don't love being a mom, but I love my kid and I love experiencing things with my kid and being there for her when she needs me and all of that good stuff. So I think we've found the strange balance that works for us. And I think beyond that, both my partner and I now and my ex-husband and Lola, we're open to things changing, right? Things change. And just because this is the way it's set up now doesn't mean the way it's going to be set up in five years or 10 years from now. And we'll see how it goes. Hmm. I'm so grateful for you for sharing this and saying it out loud, because I think there are so many overwhelming, like one narrative tropes for women out there about what we should want about having children and what we should want about being parents. And the fact is, is there are, you know, billions of women who want very different things in the world. And the narratives of maybe not wanting children or even narratives about like, you know what, I don't love being a mother. One of my best friends, she always texts me and she's like, look, I like children age six and up. I don't love babies. <laughs> she's like, I, I feel your friend. <laughs> right. And she and she's just like, like, if you like babies, great. She's like, they're just not for me. I find it exhausting and annoying and just not for me. And I was like, I'm so glad you said that because everyone's allowed to have their own opinion. And it doesn't mean that you don't love your children or you don't right. like your children. And even let me actually add a caveat there. Having children is such a roll of the dice. You might not like the child you get. I will say that out loud because I'm sure there are people listening who feel guilt and regret and remorse and all of the things that are actually totally normal to feel because there are so many of us. There's so many different ways that this goes. So that's a very long way of saying thank you for sharing your story and telling it because like we said earlier, for every person that feels one way, there's hundreds more. And it's really it's a privilege to be able to have a space for that. I think one other thing quick on that that subject of like, you can have these very 
conflicted relationships or very conflicted ideas of, of what it's all supposed to look like. I think one thing that has really caught me off guard is I think that I expected by the time she was, you know, nine and a half, she'd be a little mini me, even though I wasn't there. And maybe that wasn't a realistic expectation at all. But I think even regardless, I think that's that idea, right? That when we procreate, so we're creating these little mini me's. And I find that as she gets older and her individuality is becoming clearer, I relate to her less. And I dig it. Like, I like the person that she is. I think it's amazing. She is giving me such a glimpse into the way other people are and the way other people live and think. But it's just like, that's not me. So interesting. Like, she loves being a kid. I hated being a kid. I wanted to be an adult so bad. (laughs) But she loves it. She relishes it. It's been an interesting journey, like on a personal identity level as well, and learning to understand myself better in learning to understand how who she is as an individual. And I think that that has impacted the way I view my business as well and the kind of the identity that I bring to that. Hmm. Uh, piece of things too. Oh, yeah, that's so interesting. You know, my partner and I look at each other and we're like, hey, we could have a kid. I wonder if there'll be a blend of us. And it's actually like, or they could be like your crazy uncle, <laughs> like Joseph and my crazy aunt Jennifer, like mixed it. And we're like, oh, and also those are made up names. I don't have aunts or uncles name those names, but they could be some crazy version of like genes you never even knew existed inside of yep. you. Huh. Okay, so my final questions are rapid fire questions. And well, they're not necessarily easy, but you can answer them as as short or as long as you'd like. What for you has been the hardest part about entrepreneurship? Oh, the first thing that comes to mind is all the identity crises. (laughs) So just recognizing that as your business changes, your role changes. And just as you get comfortable in a particular role or identity in your business, you are called to move on to the next one. That probably over time has been the biggest challenge for me. What's been the best part about entrepreneurship? Again, first thing that comes to mind is flexibility. Freedom to me doesn't resonate so much. So many people cite that as like a driving force behind their business. I didn't feel tied to anything before. I don't feel tied to anything now. So flexibility just in terms of I don't have constraints. I create my own constraints and I create them the way I want them to be. And I like flexibility. And so that's what I have. (laughs) What do you wish more people knew about entrepreneurship? That it is all a giant experiment. That there is no right way. There is only the thing that works. And in order to find the thing that works for you and your business and your customers and your whole unique makeup of everything that goes into your business, you have to experiment. And until you try something out, you don't know. You just don't know. Same questions, but for parenting. What's been the hardest part of parenting for you? Other than parenting? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. I guess probably not being in control. Like you think as a kid that your parent is in control. That's not true. So yes, it's being out of control. Mm. It's it's the tantrum that goes out, out of control. It's the choice that she wants to do cheerleading that's out of control. It's It's everything. It's being out of control. Best part about parenting? Seeing a little human take shape. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm at that point now where she just she has that distinct personality. She has the set of likes and dislikes. She has an amazing group of friends. And it's just like, wow, you're a little human. Amazing. And what do you wish more people knew about parenting that people don't know? 
same answer as the first. (laughs) It's all a giant experiment. There's no right way except the way that works for you. And you don't know until you try. Oh, I love it. Okay. So the last question I have in my notes to ask you about is about beer. I see your Instagram posts. You are a connoisseur and aficionado, and I know that you really like it. What is your favorite type of brew and where is it from? Ah, well, I am a hop head. I am an IPA woman. But my absolute favorite IPA, which I have not had in in a couple of years now, which is killing me, it's a Breakside IPA at Breakside Brewing in Portland, Oregon. And if you are in that area, or it, it gets pretty widely distributed up into the Seattle area as well, go check it out. Breakside in general is just an absolutely incredible high quality, innovative brewery and their IPA is top notch. Now I want some. <laughs> me too. <laughs> and it's it's still early in the day for me. Thank you so much. Where can people find you on the interwebs and on the social medias? So the best place to find what we do now is cocommercial.co. We're going to be doing a whole host of workshops, free workshops in the new year. So you can learn more about how we do things, who our people are, but at the same time, learn something cool too. So again, it's cocommercial.co. I'm Tara Gentili everywhere else, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. But I've also just recently started writing on Medium as well. And so some of my best public written work is on Medium. Again, search Tara Gentili, I will pop up. Oh, and one more place, I have a podcast as well. So if you like listening to podcasts, Profit Power Pursuit is mine. And we our goal is to really get into the nitty gritty of how people actually do things in their business. So we deep dive on a particular subject on the way a small business owner does something maybe a little unusual or unconventional in their businesses. I can't wait for the one on payroll. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'll be just listening with like eager hands and eager ears. Thank you so much. I'll put links in the show notes for everybody. So to her medium site and to her podcast so you can listen in. Tara, thank you again for joining. Thank you, Sarah. This has been a blast. so much for being a listener of the show. A few more things before we end this episode. First, if you know of a woman or a friend that would benefit from this show, send them a link to our website at startuppregnant.com. So many of you have already reached out and shared your stories, what this podcast is doing for you. And for that, I am so grateful. So if you know of somebody that would love to listen in, or you think that these stories would really hit at home for somebody, feel free to send it along. Second, if you've got a story that you need to share or tell, head over to startuppregnant.com and send us a note. We have had so much reader mail already, and your stories mean the world to us. We are proudly listener-sponsored, so if you want to sponsor the show and hear more episodes, head over to our Patreon page and you can buy us a cup of coffee or two or three. We'll take many cups of coffee. If you want any of the show notes or links from this particular episode, all of the references and tools and tips that we talk about are always posted on StartupPregnant.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you on the next episode.